friends. Rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of talking about this message with you, and I will keep on repeating it because it's good for your faith. Stay away from the dogs, evil people, religious know-it-alls who, who claim you have to follow their rules to be saved. They talk of circumcision, but all they are interested in is outward appearance. We worship by the Spirit of God. We rely on Christ, not on religious credentials. And if anyone were going to brag about those, it would be me. I mean, come on. Circumcised when I was eight days old. Impeccable family tree. Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. Followed every rule meticulously. So strict with God's laws, I became a Pharisee. I was so zealous, I persecuted people I thought fell short. And I thought that was valuable. But it's worthless to me now. Why? Because of Christ. Everything I once thought was to my credit, I call it loss. Utter junk compared to knowing Him, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I threw away all my accomplishments so that I could know Christ and be known by Him, no longer counting on the kind of righteousness that comes from following rules. God's way of making us right with Him depends on faith. I want to know Christ personally, to experience the, the mighty power that, that rose him from the dead. I, I want to be a partner in his suffering and, and to go all the way with him, even to death itself, so that I too can somehow experience the resurrection. Look, I'm not saying that I'm perfect or, or that I've arrived. I'm saying that I will strive to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me. My friends, I'm not there yet, but I have my eyes on the goal, that place where God is beckoning us to Him. Forget the past and look forward toward what is ahead. So, Let's keep our focus, those of us who want what God has for us. I trust that all of us are in agreement about this. But if some of you think differently, uh, I trust that God will make that clear. We need to hold on to all that we have gained so far. Stick with me, my friends. Pattern your lives after ours and keep your eyes on those who are running the same course. Well, it's powerful to hear God's word communicated in ways that we can identify with today, isn't it? Well, this morning we'll be exploring this passage, Philippians chapter 3, as we continue our series, Come Together, 
our different campus pastors will be speaking at their respective campuses today, and I was honored to be asked by Pastor Brian to speak here at our Lexington campus, and so I'm excited to be here as we continue our series, Come Together, and how we can look at how we can come together more closely as a campus community. Now, this phrase, come together, or joining together, carries a lot of weight for me in our young adult ministry. Our group is called FIRE, and it's mainly comprised of uh, 20-something and 30-somethings, of which about 75 to 80% are single, many of whom are hoping to come together with that special someone. And by that special someone, I don't mean Jesus. I like to kid around and say that Thursday night is the best-smelling night of the week at our church because all the young adults are wearing a nice amount of cologne and perfume. It smells a lot better on Thursdays than it does on Wednesdays or Fridays when our middle school ministry meets. We love you guys, so we were there once too. So. But over the past three years that I've been here at Grace, we've been a part of a lot of uh, joining together through weddings and premarital counseling and the young marriage class that we are teaching right now. And one of the things that we always talk about when we talk about joining together is that central to marriage is friendship. And central to friendship is having a common passion or a common goal for life. This means that friendships are not so much created as they are discovered. C.S. Lewis insisted that the essence of friendship is the exclamation, you too, you too, as in you too are passionate about making a difference in the world, or you too uh, love to explore the national parks, or you too love puns, that's wonderful, or you too love you too, the band, or you too believe that everyone who really loves Jesus loves dogs and not cats, you too, sorry, just kidding. But a common passion or shared vision is the reason why so many people who seem to be totally unlike one another or have very different temperaments can not only be friends, but even have a fantastic marriage. For a real and lasting friendship to occur, it cannot merely be about itself. It must be about something else, something that both friends are committed to and passionate about besides one another. C.S. Lewis gives a chilling warning about this in his book, The Four Loves. Here's what he writes. Friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Friendships and relationships that are life-giving and lasting require a common vision or passion. To be in any kind of deep community, your life must be going somewhere. It must have goals and vision and passion. And if this is true for relationships or friendships in general, then how much more so should it be true for Christian community? Today, my hope is that we will each see and come to understand that community is cultivated around a common passion. And when that, com that, that common passion is so compelling and so widely shared, even people who are very unlike one another can forge deep relationships with one another. And I don't know about you, but I love the unity that we have as a church campus amidst such great diversity. I think it's a wonderful thing. But I also long for deeper relationships and community for that to exist right here within our campus as well. And I'm bet, I bet you're willing, uh, I bet that you want that as well. I'm convinced that the church provides the most significant opportunity for this kind of community because we have the greatest shared vision and common passion. And this can be a reality when your greatest goal in your life is the greatest goal and passion of our 
life together, of our lives together and our community's life. So today, I'd love to invite you to come together with me around God's word in Philippians chapter 3 to see what the common goal and passion is for our community. And we'll each see how we can play our part in allowing this vision to be realized. And as we do this, I believe that you'll begin to see and experience Christian community like we never have before. So I'd encourage you to open your Bibles with me to Philippians 3 or follow along with me on the screens and we'll approach this text a little more thematically rather than verse by verse. So let's jump ahead to Philippians 3 verse 17. Here's what Paul writes. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. Now, Paul isn't trying to get us to pay attention totally to him, but he's inviting us to join him in following the way of Jesus with him and other believers. He wants their common passions to be our common passions. He's saying, I'm not completely perfect at this, but watch how I do it, and you'll begin to get the hang of doing it yourself, of what it's like to follow Jesus. And don't just watch how I do it, but how other believers do it as well. I think Paul's elucidating a really important principle here, and it's this. That imitation is an essential practice for spiritual growth and formation. Imitation is an essential practice for spiritual growth and formation. I've heard one writer actually share that no spiritual practice is as fundamental to our being formed into the Christ life than imitation. And why is that? Because anyone who's further along than you at anything will help you get better at what you're doing, including following Jesus. Maybe you've been to the Museum of Fine Arts before and you've seen some students with sketchbooks kind of trying to learn how Monet or John Singer Sargent painted what they did. They improve their technique by imitating the technique of others. I've heard uh, guitarist John Mayer say that he attributes all the talent that he has as a guitarist to his failure to become as good as Jimi Hendrix. In other words, even people as talented as Mayer get to be as good as what they do by imitating others. I can personally say that I am a far better preacher today than I was three years ago when we arrived at Grace because each week I have a front row seat multiple times a day to get to hear Pastor Brian preach. It's an amazing thing. He's a master craftsman. And I've become, I think, from watching him develop better preaching instincts to the point that when I'm actually writing a sermon, I can almost hear his voice telling me in my head if this is a good thing or not. <laughs> it's kind of creepy, honestly. When I was writing this, I heard him say that this was the best illustration you've ever given in your life. <laughs> so just as we grow better at anything by imitating those who are further ahead than us, so we become more spiritually mature by watching and imitating others in the faith. This is why coming together for worship as a church is so essential. This is why being a part of a life community is absolutely indispensable. Because as we see the Christian life being lived out through others, we can better learn to live it out ourselves. So what are some of the things that Paul is challenging us to imitate in our lives and the life of our community that can form our common passion? Let's jump back to verse 10 and find out. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now there's a lot to what Paul is saying here, but at the heart of this powerful declaration, I want to know Christ 
is, is this not general knowledge that he desires for God, not knowledge that you might have about a celebrity or an athlete or a politician or something you might read in a book, but he's talking about firsthand personal knowledge. Paul wants to know Christ like you know your very best friend. And not only that, Paul wants to become like Christ as well. So if we jump back a couple verses even before that, Paul says here in verse 7, Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss for Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Anything other than knowing Christ is merely insignificant to Paul. Knowing Christ or being a personal relationship with him, he says, is where we find our true identity, our true confidence, our true hope, our true peace, our true mission and calling for life, and our true life itself. It is the greatest thing that any of us can ever experience. Because knowing Jesus is just that wicked awesome, Paul says that nothing else even comes remotely close to knowing him. This is why he further points out and goes on to say, Verse 8, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Everything other than knowing Christ in this personal, saving, highly relational way is seen as so secondary to Paul that he likens it to rubbish, to rubbish. Now the New Testament was written in Greek and the Greek word for rubbish is the word skubalon. Scubalon. Would you say that with me? Scubalon. It means refuse or animal excrement and has been translated in our different English versions of the Bible as garbage, filth, dung, dung heap, and dog dung. When I, when I googled Scubalon, an image of this t-shirt popped up right here. It says, Scubalon happens. Some Greek students were very bored in class one day and I think they came up with that. But if the t-shirt makers here are right in their usage of Scubalon, then I might have accidentally made all of you swear in biblical Greek this morning, so my bad. (laughs) But Paul's point in saying this is to show that everything else he thought he had going for himself was so inferior, so insignificant when compared to what it's like to know Christ. And this is why Paul continues to uh, want to know Christ more than anything else. Here's what he says in verse 12. Not that I already obtained this or have already reached the goal, But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul doesn't claim to have it all together to be perfect, but he says, I keep striving, I keep reaching, I keep pressing on for Jesus, even when things get tough. I'm going to go all out for him because he went all out for me on the cross. Since he suffered, since he bled, since he suffocated and died for me, I'm not going to let any setbacks or persecution or inconvenience or frustration or possible pain stand in my way or deter me. No, I'm pressing on. I hope you're pressing on today. And what is he pressing on to? Verse 13 says, Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do. I press toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Now when I read this passage, the phrase that absolutely just leaps out and captures my attention is the phrase, this one thing I do. Now, Paul obviously does not mean that he literally only does one thing because we hear about him throughout the New Testament preaching and teaching and training and traveling and even tent making, uh, to name a few. 
But Paul is saying that while he does many things, he really only is striving to do one thing. He has a single-mindedness, a resolute focus, a honed mission. For Paul, everything boils down to one thing. So if we are called to imitate him, then maybe all of the wildly unique roles and responsibilities that we fill should be about one thing as well. And not just personally, but collectively as our church. If you had to summarize your life into the statement, this one thing I do, what would be the one thing that you do? Take a moment to think about this. As you go about doing many things, ask yourself honestly, what's the one thing you're really after? What's the one thing you're really striving towards? What's the one thing that seems to underlie everything else that you do? Maybe it's achievement, proving that you have what it takes. Or maybe it's family, trying to provide for for your own. Or maybe it's just trying to keep everything running smoothly so you don't have any major headaches or disappointments. Or maybe your one thing is you. Maybe you do what you do for yourself because what you do makes you feel alive, makes you feel powerful, makes you feel like you're somebody. Now just imagine that the people closest to you were going to answer this question about you. What would they say your one thing is? What would they say your life is really all about? What about our church? What would people say the one thing our church here at the Lexington campus is all about? What would people say that 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 is? I hope and pray that your one thing, that my one thing, that our one thing would be what Paul says his one thing is. So what is that one thing that Paul is after? What's his goal or mission or passion? Well, interestingly enough, we see this phrase used uh, a couple different times in Scripture, and I have to strongly believe that these passages of Scripture would have uh, informed Paul's thinking as well. The first of these is from Psalm 27, verse 4. It says, one thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. What a prayer and declaration that is. So what's the one thing the psalmist David here desires and prays for? He wants to dwell in God's house. Or to be with God, knowing him, relating with him, appreciating him, enjoying his company, being wide in wonder of his beauty and glory. He knows that being with God will change him and help him to to lead more effectively and lead more rightly to the people that God's entrusted to him. David wants to be with God or to become like him. For David, the Lord is his one thing. We also hear Jesus use this phrase as well in Luke 10 when he's hanging out with Mary and Martha at their home. So Jesus goes over to their home and these sisters are doing different things. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to what he has to say while Martha is busy doing many things around the house. And she starts to see Mary just sitting over there and starting to get a little bitter that why isn't my sister helping me out here? And so she comes to Jesus and says, hey Jesus, can't you see that this is wrong that Mary is sitting here while I'm doing all this work? And what's Jesus' response to her? She says, Martha. He says, Martha, Martha, you are busy doing many things. You're worried and distracted. But there is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, 
which will not be taken away from her. There is need of only one thing. Now, I just personally love this story because this sister pair kind of reminds me of my own wife and her younger sister. Now, we're not told if Mary or Martha is the older sister, but if you had to take a guess, which of these two women probably would be the older sister? You know, Mary, the one who's just kind of sitting, or Martha, the one who's busy making sure all the responsibilities get taken care of? What do you think? Yeah, I would guess Martha as well. Martha seems to be like that classic type A overachieving person that follows all the rules and does everything right, doesn't she? While Mary seems to be kind of be that younger sister that just kind of seems to go with the flow, kind of knows that everything is going to, uh, to work out, doesn't get too worked up about anything. But it's one of my favorite twists in all of Scripture that Mary is affirmed for sitting and listening, just being with Jesus, while Martha gets corrected for being too busy and too worried and distracted. Now, when I've been quite comfortable sitting on the cushions of my couch, and my wife Erin asked me to help out cleaning up, I've tried using this story to persuade her that sitting (laughs) and not cleaning is the more biblical thing to do. But I bet you can imagine how that one turned out. There is need of only one thing. So what is this one thing that Mary chooses? It's being with Jesus. It's sitting at his feet, which was symbolic for learning to live the way he would live if Jesus were her. It's about her being his apprentice. In other words, Mary wanted to be with Jesus to learn to live like him. That's her one thing. That's the one thing. If we were to simplify that even further, we could say that Mary's one thing is Jesus himself. There's need of only one thing, and he is Jesus. So let's get back to Paul. He says, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call in Christ Jesus. I love how the message translation puts it. He says, friends, don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself an expert in all of this, but I've got my eye on the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I'm off and running and I'm not turning back. So what's Paul's one thing? What's his life and focus and passion really all about? It's Jesus. It's being with him to become like him. Now I think there's a really important connection to being with and becoming like that we hear. I bet from experience most of you could say that you kind of become like the people that you spend the most time around, don't you? That's why it's so important to surround yourself with the right kind of people, especially when you're kind of growing up. And that's why this one thing, being with God, to become like Jesus, is so important because the more time we spend with Christ, the more we're going to become like him. The more we're going to become like him. And that's ultimately what God desires for you and for me more than anything else, that we would become like Jesus and live like him. And that's not only God's goal for us individually, but for our campus and our church, for everyone. It's how your life's purpose gets fulfilled. I love how Dallas Willard summarizes what he believes to be the overarching and pervasive theme throughout all of Scripture. He said that the aim of God in human history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons, people who live and reflect Christ's love, with God himself at the very center of this community as its prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. So what is God's one thing, so to speak? It's creating a community of people who are like God, with God himself at the center of this community as its sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. 
It's a beautiful vision or goal, isn't it? And the way we get in on seeing this vision realized is through what we call spiritual formation. Spiritual formation. Robert Moholland says that spiritual formation is the process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. So first, it's a process. It doesn't happen instantaneously. It doesn't work according to our timetable as we would like. It can be terribly inefficient, but it takes patience and persistence and a steadfast commitment to that one thing. It is about becoming like Jesus, people who are pervaded with God's sacrificial, unconditional love. But it doesn't stop there. It's for the sake of others. The point of becoming more like Jesus is to be a blessing to other people for the common good and ultimately for the glory of God. This is the reason why we pray and worship and study the scriptures and attend groups and so forth. It's so that we can love others from the overflow of our abundant life in God. If your spiritual practices, prayer and whatnot, are not leading you to become a more loving person, then I'd strongly urge you to reconsider how or why you're doing whatever it is that you're doing. Committing to spiritual formation is what I believe sums up Paul's one thing and what it's all about. So if that's Paul's one thing, and we are to imitate him, then what should be our one thing as a community? Remember we said that community is cultivated around a common passion. So here's what I think the common passion or our one thing is. Being with God to become like Christ for the sake of others. Just imagine if that was the center of our community life. Can you imagine what a force for good we would be if each and every one of us committed and said, I am all in for this. So to help us take a few steps forward in making this passion our common or collective passion, let me just offer you four brief thoughts here. First, being with God personally is where spiritual community begins. Being with God personally is where spiritual community begins. The late Harvard professor Henry Nouwen writes this, why is it so important that solitude or being with God personally come before, the, before community? or that community springs forth from solitude, he says, if we do not know we are the beloved sons and daughters of God, we're going to expect someone in the community to make us feel special or worthy. Ultimately, they cannot. If we start trying to create community, we'll expect someone to give us that perfect, unconditional love. Many relationships begin out of fear of being alone, but they can't ultimately satisfy the need that only solitude with God or being with him personally can fulfill. So don't look to others to fulfill what only God can satisfy in your life. Spend time with him. Discover and rediscover just how loved and accepted you are by him. So being with God is where spiritual community begins. The second thought goes hand in hand here with the first. The most important gift that you bring to the community is your transforming self. Even more than your talents, the most important gift you bring is your commitment to spiritual formation, being continually transformed to be like Christ. Because when you grow, we grow. When you grow, we all grow. 
When one part gets stronger, the whole body gets stronger. As you are being transformed, we are being transformed. But becoming more and more like Jesus is a responsibility that only you can fulfill. No one else can do that for you. Yes, only God can bring about the growth in your life. That's true. But it's up to you to make the time and the space for him to meet with you and to transform your life. And friends, don't underestimate what a gift you can be to the community. If you're a kid in Kidstown here this morning, one of the ways to make Kidstown even more awesome than it already is is to put what you hear on Sundays into practice. Can you imagine how much cooler Kidstown would be if every kid lived more and more like Jesus? It would be awesomer than the most awesomest thing that you could ever imagine, right? And you can make that happen. If you're in our middle school or high school student ministry, the same goes for you. One of the best ways to make your group better is to commit to continually striving to be like Christ. Believe it or not, the best way to make the group better isn't for the leaders to give better talks or do crazier things or plan better trips, but it's for you to continue to mature and grow and bring that transforming self there each and every week. And the same goes for those of you in life community groups. The best way to strengthen your group is to bring the gift of your transforming self. And the same goes for our church as a whole. We all grow when you grow. So the third step that we can take in making this one thing our thing is to stay put. To stay put. I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in an incredibly squirmy society, don't we? It's hard for us to sit still. It's hard for us to be where we are and not fantasize about going somewhere else. It's, uh, it's, diffi- it's difficult not to think the grass is greener somewhere else. But if we want any chance at seeing this one thing be realized here in our community, then we have to remain where we are in this place as part of this church. Now, I totally understand that we live in one of the most transient cities anywhere. But for those of us who can stay put, I'm willing to guess that staying put might be the best thing for your spiritual life. And here's why. Because being with the same people over a long stretch of time is one of the best ways to grow in your faith. Pastor John Orberg said one of my least favorite and favorite things, and he says that if you want to grow, find some difficult people to help you grow. Find some difficult people to help you grow. Loving difficult people and sticking with them is one of the best ways to grow your faith and the faith of your community. And I've got news for you. As a pastor here of this church, I can attest that we have a lot of difficult people here at our church, and I'm one of them. Anyone else a difficult person here at this church? few people willing to laugh at that? All right, good. But one of the great temptations we always have, especially for us younger people, is that, the, that we want to run after the newest, the latest, or the most happening thing, even when it comes to church. But what I'm beginning to learn is that staying put is one of the best ways to get in on the new thing that God is doing. And if you're young here, what a, what a privilege to be a part of this church. We stand on the shoulders of some giants, and I believe that God wants to continue to do some great things through this legacy that he's already created here at Grace Chapel. So I hope you're with me and will stay put. And then lastly, keep yourself from distraction. Keep yourself from distraction. I've heard it said by several writers that I respect that distraction is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life in our day and age. It's the greatest enemy. This seemed to be true not only in our day, but in Paul's day as well, which is why he says, forgetting what lies behind, I am straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. 
In other words, he tries to get everything out of his way that might get in the way of him following the way of Jesus. Earlier we heard Jesus correcting Martha for being worried and distracted. Now the Greek word here for distracted is the word perispaho, and it means to be drawn about in mind or over-occupied. Instead of being, there being one thing that you're all about, being distracted means that you're trying to be about too many things. And by being over-occupied, you miss out on the one thing that you cannot afford to miss. And that's being with God to become like Christ for the sake of others. So personally, let me ask you, what occupies or distracts your mind? Maybe it's impression management caring way too much about how other people perceive you. Or maybe you just care way too much about getting attention. Or maybe you just allow yourself to be distracted by sloppy habits and how you use technology. I like to to call this thing, this iPhone, my little distraction machine. Maybe you simply need to cut down on the amount of time that you spend in front of a screen Because it's not just what you look at on a screen that distracts you, but the very act of using these things reprograms your mind to be endlessly distracted. A lot of researchers tell us this. It is Google's goal to get you to click on more things. Because the more you click, the more money they make. But not only that, the more you click, the more susceptible you are to becoming more easily distracted. This summer, Aaron and I visited the Shelbourne Museum near Burlington, Vermont, a great place, and we came across this artist's mantra for how she keeps herself from being distracted. Here's what she says. I am walking the walk, totally focused, paying attention to bed early, up early, 10 to 12 hour days. Dedicated computer time reduced to 30 minutes per day. No phones in the studio, all necessary preparations predicated on efficiency. Wet studio organized, using the fewest tools to facilitate mark making and drawing. Stacks of fabrics prepared, corralling black thoughts, going forward, making mistakes, not looking back, learning, loosening up, feeling the thrill day after day, keeping the routine, short ones, long ones, over and over, riffing on repetition, seeking beauty, believing, self-portraits of who I am. I love that. What a mantra. What a way to stand up against distraction. And here's an image of her work, of uh, the, the, the fruit that was born from this. Now, what's so impressive to me about this, this uh, work right here is that these are quilts. They're quilts. But as I look at these, it makes me think of what we could become if we had such a single-mindedness, so much focus on this one thing, that I believe God could weave us together to be something as powerful and as beautiful as that. About a year and a half ago, I could sense that distraction was really starting to get the better of me. And so I kind of wrote my own spoken word mantra, similar to what this artist wrote, to kind of keep my mind focused on the one thing. I've shared this with you before, but would like to share it again this morning. Here's what I wrote. This one thing I do, this one thing I think, this one thing I breathe, this one thing I am. Leaving the rest behind, out of my sight, out of my mind, out of my wants, out of my time. For there is no time. You think there's room for more, but space does not permit for even two. That's why it's this one thing I do. My one thing is you. 
Not you and this or that or him or her or here or there, behind or before. Not you plus performance or pleasure, possessions or popularity. Not you plus diversions, distractions, recognitions, rewards. Not you plus outdoing, outshining, outstanding, outlasting. Not you plus, no, just one thing, you. More and more and through and through, inside and out, right and left, within and about. You, 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 for there's no need for more. You are all, you are enough, you are everything, you are love. Nothing compares, nothing else comes close. Only you satisfy and oh, how my soul is satisfied. Yet I long for more, seek more, thirst and stretch and grasp and cry out for more, so much more, to taste and see and be still and know and live and move and have all my being wrapped up in the one thing whose presence gives life, brings life, makes life, is life. There's one thing I do because there's only one thing to do, one thing or nothing. One thing I ask of the Lord and that I would seek, just you, just you. Amen. Well, since the time of writing this, I've learned that this one thing will never be my one thing without the help of others, without it being their one thing or our one thing. So I rewrote this from the, person of the, from the perspective of the first person plural, we, instead of the first person singular, I. And in a moment, I'm going to ask us to close by saying this together. Now, I'm not expecting you to say this authentically or even nearly as fast as what I just did or to make some kind of vow here today, but I'm simply asking you to imagine how our community could be cultivated if this one thing, being with God to become like Christ for the sake of others, was our one thing. I believe that these words put it into focus for us as well as anything. So would you please stand with me as we read this with as much passion that we can muster, or that God can muster with you. Would you read this with me? This one thing we do, this one thing we think, this one thing we breathe, this one thing I am. Leaving the rest behind, out of our sight, out of our minds, out of our wants, out of our time. For there is no time. You'd think there's room for more, but space does not permit for even two. That's why it's this one thing we do. One thing is you. Not you and this or that or him or her or here or there, behind or before. Not you plus performance or pleasure, possessions or popularity. Not you plus diversions, distractions, recognitions, rewards. Not you plus outdoing, outshining, outlasting, outstanding. Not you plus no, just one thing, you, more and more and through and through, inside and out, right and left, within and about, you, 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 for there's no need for more, you are all, you are enough, you are everything, you are love, nothing compares, nothing comes close, only you satisfy, and oh, how our souls are satisfied. Yet we long for more, seek more, thirst and stretch and grasp and cry out for more, so much more, to taste and see and be still and know and live and move and have our being wrapped up in the one thing whose presence gives life, brings life, makes life, is life. 
There's one thing we do because there's only one thing to do. One thing or nothing. One thing we ask of the Lord and that we would seek. Just you. Just you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much that we could rally together around the most important thing that we could ever be a part, a part of or be about. And that one thing, of course, is you, Jesus. Help us to long to want to be with you more than anything else. I pray that the words that we just spoke would be not just a great lofty vision, but become the reality of our life together here at Grace Chapel Lexington. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would make that possible as you strengthen us, enliven us, and give us your very life and breath because you're the giver of life and breath and everything else. And so, Lord, we pray that this would be true in our hearts, in our lives, that you keep any other distractions far, far away so that we can live for you, for your great glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said together, amen. Amen. amen.